Our text is to be found in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. As you're turning there, I want to say to you this morning that in studying and in preaching this text, I stand here today with a very heavy heart. Not because I have some terrible announcement to make to you, but because of this text. There is a great burden that I have felt all week long and in the weeks leading up to this text. A burden for the world in which we live. A burden for the Christian church throughout the world. A burden for this local church and for every one of you. What this text communicates and describes is entirely contrary to the character, to the direction, and to the message of the world in which we live today. There is not one piece of this text that is in accord with the world as you know it right now. We might expect that, that shouldn't surprise us, but what is even more burdensome to me this morning is that what this text communicates and describes is frightening, frighteningly contrary to the way many Western churches and many Christians live today, even in Bible-believing, expository preaching churches. What the Apostle Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is meant to be a wake-up call to Christians even in our century. And as such, it is a mixture of both encouragement and confrontation. It is meant both to comfort and to convict. And I have no doubt that all of us will easily accept the comfort this passage has to offer but I plead with you this morning, do not resist the conviction because it is meant for our good. It is meant for the Lord's glory and for our joy in Him. But because what Peter calls for in this passage is profoundly lacking in churches all around us and because these things may be lacking within our own church, we must come to this text prayerfully and humbly, ready to submit ourselves to its teaching. And we must consider no one else's heart but our own as we seek to learn what God is teaching and to follow in His ways. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. Please follow along as I read. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I expect that most of you are familiar with the effects of what is commonly called laughing gas. Either you have experienced those effects yourselves, or you have observed them in others and have very conveniently caught them on camera. Maybe you know those effects. When I think of nitrous oxide, I think of the dentist. When someone is having serious work done on their teeth, it is not uncommon to use some combination of nitrous oxide and something else in order to put somebody com either completely to sleep 
or at least or at least to intoxicate them in their mind and to dull their awareness so as to keep them calm and comfortable in spite of the trauma that is going on right in front of or right in the front of their face. Right? We're thankful for that, aren't we? When we consider the effects of laughing gas on a dental patient, we can find great humor in it. But when we consider the same state of mind morally and spiritually in our world today, it is no laughing matter. There is a spiritual fog that has descended upon our world, and it has lulled this world to sleep, rendering it insensitive to spiritual matters and unresponsive to spiritual truth. The Apostle Paul describes it in no uncertain terms, calling it the influence of Satan. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that this world is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says again in Ephesians 4, 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This is the spirit of the world in which we live today. This is reality. And we expect that from those who are lost, right? From those who do not know Christ, those who are not following according to the word of God, those who have no faith in Christ, we would expect it from them. But the sad reality is that this spiritual fog has not just descended on the world at large, but it has crept in, it has wafted in to the church in many ways. And the sad result is that many who claim to be Christians have been lulled into a spiritual stupor. As we consider our context today, in the 21st century context of our Western society, biblical illiteracy is startlingly high, isn't it? for all the resources that we have available at our fingertips. And yet worldliness is prominent in the church. Commitment to scripture and commitment to the gathering of the saints is, is shockingly low. Devotion to holiness and the spiritual disciplines is almost non-existent. Like dental patients hopped up on laughing gas, we are physically present but not engaged. We are hearing the word, but not responding. We are entertained and distracted by every little thing that comes along. We live in the world, but we are unable to discern its evils, and we are unable to respond to its attacks. We have remarkably slow reflexes in the face of spiritual warfare, not recognizing the truth, nor understanding the danger. We are intoxicated by the world. And as a result, we are numb to the word and to the spirit of God. And what grieves my heart the most this morning, beloved, is that I may have just described some of you. And for some, this may describe you because you have grown lethargic in your profession of faith. You are not as interested in God and in the word of God and the church that you, as you so outwardly claim. You are devoted to this world or you are weighed down or distracted by this world. And Christianity might just be for you a means to achieving what you're already pursuing in this world or the comfort of this world. Indeed, this may describe you because you have filled your mind with worldly thoughts and worldly values and worldly pursuits and worldly messages, and you have neglected the illuminating and life-giving pursuit of God and study of His Word. You have spent your time and your energy and your resources on the vanity of this world, and you have lost the love for the Lord that you had at first. To you, this text is a forceful confrontation and a startling wake-up call to the reality of what God's Word has to say in the, in the light of who God is and what He is up to. Now, for others of you, 
Maybe this describes you not because you are, have lost interest in God, but because you are groaning under the weight of suffering in a sinful world. You grieve because of your sin. You long to be free from the effects of sin in your life. And you are, you are discouraged because following Christ has been hard for you and you are paying a price. You are not losing your interest in the Lord, but maybe you are losing your joy in the Lord. To you, this text is a divine word of comfort, not to lose heart, but to carry on striving after godly, Christ-like character. But in either case, whether we are willing to admit it or not, and whether the, the church at large wants to talk about it or not, the reality is we are in desperate need today of revival, of awakening, or of reformation, whatever you want to call it. We are in desperate need today of a return to the Lord, of a return to His Word, a return to holy living, and to a return to a heavenly mindset and in, in, in heavenly anticipation. We need to wake up to the reality of the world in which we live to the urgency of our calling, to the all-consuming nature of our Christian confession, and to the cost of following Jesus. And Peter's purpose in writing these words this morning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to convince God's people of the most urgent reality and then to issue a critical call to godly living in light of that reality and then to encourage God's people and to motivate God's people to live this way in the light of a joyful glory. We'll get to that at the end. In the first part of verse 7, Peter states very quickly and very emphatically the urgent reality that we need to understand, the urgent reality. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The original readers to whom Peter writes were beginning to face severe persecution for their faith. And once again, as he has done so many times throughout the book, Peter is encouraging them and he is teaching them how to navigate life in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that persecution, how to live in the midst of it with steadfast hope in Christ. And what he says here is both an encouragement to the weary and a wake-up call to the faltering. The end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? Well, some have suggested that Peter is referring to the end of their lives. And certainly there can be some encouragement and helpful instruction there, right? Remembering that their suffering in this present world is only for a short time. But that is a partial end. That is not the end of all things. So there has to be more that Peter has in mind here. Others have suggested that Peter is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the temple in AD 70. When that central icon of Jehovah's people is finally destroyed. But again, that is a partial end. That is not the end of all things. And what's more, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering in Asia. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem doesn't have immediate bearing on their lives. The end of all things that Peter is referring to here is something much bigger and something that is an immediate concern for every one of us throughout all ages. And it is this, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated end is not used in the New Testament for a chronological end. But it is used for the culmination of something. It is used to refer to the accomplishment of a goal or the fulfillment of a purpose. The consummation of the present age in which we live is the second coming of Jesus Christ, when the Lord Jesus himself will return to reign on the earth, and he, when he will deliver his people to their eternal inheritance, and when he will finally and fully destroy all the works 
and all the workers of darkness, banishing them along with the devil and his demons into the lake of fire forever. Turn over, hold your finger here and turn over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where the apostle Paul describes this in no uncertain terms. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This is an urgent reality that has meaning for every single person here today. The end of all things is at hand. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, and he isn't coming just to hang out. And either you are among those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and for you the day of the Lord's return will be a day of celebration and joy, or else you are among those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you, that day of the Lord's return will be a day of damnation and terror. Friends, there is no middle ground. There is no, I'll make up my mind later, or I'll wait to see if what, if what you say is true. No, he is coming. And Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, describes the judgment of the Lord on all who are outside of, his, of Christ on that day. There is a great white throne before which every unbeliever will be judged according to his own works, and everyone will be found guilty and sentenced to eternal punishment and will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. This is an urgent reality. And only those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ who have their sins forgiven by his grace and through his blood alone will be delivered from such a judgment. For as the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death and we are all sinners. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But that's just it. Do you see that? There is a name under heaven that is given by which we can be saved. And we read that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So this is an urgent reality. The end of all things is at hand and the Lord will soon return. And the implication of this is clear, as the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's awaken from the fog of the world. Let's put on the truth of the word of God for the end of all things is at hand and the Lord is coming soon. And if you have never come to a definitive point of admitting that you are a sinner, confessing that sin in prayer to God and submitting to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is time for you to awake to reality. Jesus is coming any moment. You are not promised tomorrow. You're not even promised this afternoon. 
And with such an urgent reality pressing in on you, my friends, what reason could you possibly have to put off putting your faith in the great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. My friend, repent of sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this moment. And Christian, this urgent reality has implications for your life too. Because Jesus is returning at any moment and the end of all things is near, it is not time for us to sit down in a corner to soak up everything we possibly can and wait. It is time for us to stand up and to live as if he is coming back at any moment. And Peter spends the rest of this passage teaching us how this eternal perspective this reality of Christ's imminent return must direct how we live in the present world. And so beginning in the second part of verse 7, Peter says, therefore, that's what he's getting at. Because of this, therefore, you must behave this way. In light of this urgent reality, Peter issues now a critical call. A critical call to all who claim the name of Christ to live in a certain way. And this call is made up of five characteristics, five key ideas. I'll summarize each of them with a key word. Five key words. First of all, think. Think. Can you do that this morning? Look at the middle of verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Jesus is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, wake up, be self-controlled, and be sober-minded. These are two characteristics that have to do with how we think. The word be has the idea, it's, it's a constant thing. This isn't just acknowledge that, but make this the pattern of your life. Be consistent in this. Make this the character of who you are. And that word self-controlled comes from a word that means to be of sound mind or temperate. It means to be in your right mind, not hindered by the fog. It means to be of sound judgment and sound discernment. This is somebody who is not easily distracted or easily fooled, but rather shows wisdom in their thinking and behavior. This is somebody who is able to look at the world in which we live today and by the wisdom of God's word is able to recognize what is good and what is not good, what is commendable and what is to be avoided. In scriptural terms, one who is self-controlled is not enslaved to his passions or controlled by the trends and attractions of this world. This is somebody who knows when to stop eating. This is somebody who knows when to shut his mouth. This is somebody who knows when to walk away. But frankly, it's also somebody who knows when to stand up and when to get busy. This is somebody who knows the difference between truth and error. This is somebody who knows the difference between good and better and the difference between better and best. So somebody who is self-controlled, of sound mind, who is wise in his behavior. And then the word sober-minded is closely related to that. Even building upon it, it has the idea of moral alertness and watchfulness. This is somebody who has a certain mature gravity about them, a sober spirit, not to the point of being sullen or negative or a hypercritical person. There isn't a place for that in the Christian's joy. But this is somebody who takes life seriously and somebody who walks circumspect, circumspectly. This is somebody who understands that just because the media says it doesn't mean it's true. 
And just because our politician recommends it doesn't mean we are bound. But this is also somebody who recognizes that just because a sinful preacher stands up and says it doesn't mean it's so, that you must test all things by the sober-minded study of the Word of God and then walk circumspectly, aware of the world that you live in. There are many notable Christian pastors and leaders today that we are finding out in recent weeks have not been self-controlled and sober-minded. They have not been thinking properly. And as a result, they have not seen the intensity of the spiritual warfare of the world that is surrounding Christians today. They have been led along because they have wanted to fit in with the world and they have wanted as much as possible to follow the trends of the world and the techniques of the world. And now they have been the agents through which error has crept into the church and spread not just to other leaders, but now the same tendency is among Christians in general, especially regard to many of the trending issues and controversies of our day where Christians have shown a startling lack of discernment. And Peter is calling Christians now to, to put that away and to stand up and to think biblically, to take our mission seriously, to put the Word of God back front and center into our ministry and to walk in its wisdom with our minds and hearts saturated with the truth of God The answers to many of the trending issues and controversies and popular questions of our day are much more easily answered and they become much clearer for those who are self-controlled and sober-minded, who think according to God's mind. But alas, how few there really are who do so. Peter's call to self-control and sober-mindedness has been a theme throughout this letter. He has said from the beginning, for instance, back in chapter 1, verse 31, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or as the Apostle Paul exhorts us famously in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You know what that means? It means be different. <laughs> by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christians, it is time to stop endlessly filling our minds and our lives with the world's ideas. It is time to stop trying to supplement our Christian faith with worldly philosophy. It doesn't work. They're not compatible. It is time to stop wasting our best hours on useless entertainment and pursuits. And it is time to seek the things that are above where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. It is time to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It is time to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand in the evil day. And it is time to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we are called to resist him, firm in our faith. I can't remember the last time I heard a preacher say those verses. Now we're going to get to it because it's coming up in the next chapter. But all this is what it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And everything that follows from here on out in this text flows from that. The command is be self-controlled, be sober-minded. And then everything else describes what that looks like in our lives. And so that brings us to the next key word. We've said think, next is pray. Self-controlled, sober-minded people who live in the light of Christ's return at any moment, pray. End of verse 7, he says, for the sake of your prayers. That phrase, for the sake of, links this self-controlled, sober-minded way of thinking to our praying. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 
In other words, Peter is describing why we pray and how we pray. And the idea there is that we must be of such sound judgment and such sober spirit so as to pray. And having this mindset, we have a realistic view of the spiritual warfare. We have a realistic view of how serious these issues are. We have a realistic view of how incompetent we are on our own. And so we pray. We have a realistic view of the temptations that bombard not just ourselves, but every other person in our fellowship from day to day. And so we pray. We have a longing for Christ to return now. And so we pray. This is why the Apostle Paul finishes his list of spiritual armor in in Ephesians chapter 6 with an emphasis on prayer. And he says in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's praying, for all the saints. And Paul says it again very frankly in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. In other words, stay right with God. Get your mind set on reality. Stay close to God. Stay focused on God and stay dependent on God. One who thinks this way will live with an eager anticipation of the Lord's return. This is one who lives with self-control and sober mind and who is constant in prayer, who is devoted to dependence upon the Lord. Christian, do you pray? I want to ask, how do you pray? But before I get there, I've learned I have to just ask and I have to ask myself this question. Do we pray? How do you pray? When do you pray? For what do you pray? The call to spiritual awakening and self-controlled, sober-minded living is a call to constant and earnest prayer. Our next key word, then, is love. Think, pray, love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That phrase, above all, doesn't mean that nothing else is important. But it means that this command, this aspect of love, is something that is overarching. This this covers everything. Everything else that we do. This marks every aspect of our lives. It defines who we are. And the word for love here is the word agape. You've heard that word before, I'm sure, most of you. It is not merely a feeling. It is not an emotional attachment or an attraction. This isn't, I, you know, I I love ethnic food. Or I love the Clemson Tigers or whoever your inferior team might be. That's not what this love is. This love has to do with overall goodwill and esteem toward others, and it is not selective. It involves selfless devotion and sacrifice toward the good of others, and the command is keep loving. That implies a constant effort, not just when it is convenient or easy, but at all times, in every circumstance, toward every person, whether lovely or not. And the idea here, the language is such that it conveys the idea that this love would be something that we wear as a garment over us, so that it is what covers us, and so that it is what Others see when they see us. It is something that we are to pursue earnestly. That word earnestly. The the image behind that word, it was used to to describe a horse in full sprint, fully extended. Or an athlete 
Some of you are watching the Olympics. I haven't been watching the Olympics, but I saw some clips of the weightlifters. These guys are amazing, right? They, they, they throw that barbell up above their heads, and they're standing there shaking, quivering, right? Have you seen it? You know, until that, that bell goes off, and then they drop it. That's earnestly. That is how we are to pursue love, to love one another within the context of our, the church, stretching for it, going out of our way, exercising it, disciplining ourselves toward it. It is a zealous pursuit of love for one another. Striving with all of our might to cultivate this love and jealously defending it in the church. Standing in the way of anyone who will hinder it. This is a mutual love. Something that ought to characterize every person in every connection and every relationship and every conversation and every action within the church. It's a full-time job. And it's 24-7. And then Peter adds, since love covers a multitude of sins, why is love important? Because we're all sinners. We're going to mess up. We don't do everything perfectly, and we need grace. We need love. We need forgiveness. It is not our perfection that will keep us united as a church. It's our love for one another. It is not our perfection that is going to speak well of Christ to the world around us. It is our love for one another. And this idea of love covering a multitude of sins is not suggesting that we cover up things that need to be dealt with. That's not what this is talking about. It is not suggesting that we ignore the sin within the church that needs to be dealt with. We need to deal with it. But what this is getting at is that we, as individual Christians, expressing love toward one another, need to be of a forgiving spirit. It means that we need to have a spirit of grace and patience toward one another, giving the benefit of the doubt to one another because we are one with each other. It means that we are going to do everything within our power to build one another up, not to tear one another down. And the truth is, this local church is made up of people, and people are sinners. We are saved by God's grace, yes, but we still sin. And it is inevitable that someone at some point in this congregation is going to do something you don't like or something you don't understand. They may even say some things to you that, that offends you or hurts you or raises a question in your mind. Peter's call here is you give them the benefit of the doubt. You assume the best about your brothers and sisters in Christ until you have reason to think otherwise. Hear me, beloved. This issue is where most conflict and division happens within a local church. And if we are not actively pursuing it and guarding against any characteristic or any mindset that is not consistent with this, it will tear this church apart. Someone says something that offends someone else. Someone does something that raises a question in someone else's mind. There's a, there's a personality rub between people or, or we become territorial. And instead of giving the benefit of the doubt that whoever said such a thing didn't mean it the way we took it, or instead of asking the necessary questions to find out if we're seeing it clearly, we hold a grudge. We make an immediate judgment. We never get around. We start talking about it with other people and we never get around to dealing with the issue. So it festers and it becomes a much bigger problem than it ever had to be. Understand the implication of what Peter is teaching here, beloved. If you are that problem or if you are that person, you are the problem. And how much damage is done to the body of Christ and the cause of Christ and to the reputation of Christ because those who call themselves Christians do not properly love one another. 
when Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what? We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have personality rubs. What is it that marks a godly church? A godly community of saints. As we learn how to navigate those things with love. With love that seeks the benefit and the health of one another. Our testimony to a watching and already skeptical world is demonstrated most clearly in our love for one another. This means, Christian, very practically, boots on the ground. I think we've all probably struggled with this in some way or another. If you have any question about the character or behavior of anyone else within this body, or if you have been offended by someone, or if you have observed some potentially sinful characteristic or pattern in someone else, you have an obligation either to get over it and not hold it against them, or if you can't do that, to go and talk to that person and address it specifically and graciously and humbly. You have no business talking about it with anyone else until you do. And failure to do so is a failure to love as God's word has commanded. And it is evidence that we are not thinking clearly at a time when we need to be alert. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's where this process begins. And the Apostle Paul said it in Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And yet he issues a warning. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Christians who are thinking, who are praying, are loving. And Christians who are thinking and praying and loving are sharing. That's our fourth word, share. You say, where do you get that? Well, we see it in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This helps us to see that biblical love, as it's described in verse 8, is practical in its, in its expression. That biblical love is not just something we affirm with our mouths, but something we show with our actions. I had a teacher recently kind of use it, explain it this way. Jesus said, if you love me, tell me. Is that what he said? No, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We think we've done our loving duty by saying that we love somebody. And Peter's saying, no, put feet to it. We all have some idea of what hospitality is, don't we? That's a word that we, for the most part, get. The biblical word that is used here for hospitality means loving strangers. Loving strangers. Kids, that doesn't mean go out and just talk to all strangers. That's not the idea here. But it's a, a welcoming and embracing spirit. In the first century, it was very, very dangerous for Christians to find places of temporary lodging in the common places where the rest of the society would. They were places of debauchery, immorality. It was common in the first century church as Christians traveled around, to travel with a letter from a respected church leader vouching for the trustworthiness of that Christian individual so that that Christian individual could have entrance into another Christian's home to stay. That's the idea. I've never met you. I don't know anything about you except this. You're a believer in my Savior. Therefore, I welcome you. It means to open up ourselves to one another and to let others into our lives. And it means to enter into others. It isn't just about preparing a meal and having somebody over for dinner, although that is a, a, a 
great and highly recommended way of showing hospitality. But it means more than that. It means looking for the needs among God's people and expending ourselves in meeting them. Jesus commended this kind of behavior in Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40, when he spoke of those who gave food and water in his name to those in need. He specifically said that when it was given to them, it was given to him. And this spirit, turn over to Acts chapter 2, we'll see this spirit is exemplified, modeled by the early church in Acts chapter 2. Verses 44 through 46, where we read, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So here they are, sharing meals together, going into the temple together. They didn't have a church building, so they commandeered the temple. And they used that. And they would meet together as Believers, Then they would go out and they would gather in each other's homes and they would eat together and they devoted themselves, we read, to the, to the apostles' doctrine and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread and the fellowship of the saints. But here's the key. He says that we are to do these things without grumbling. And some of you understand that hospitality is a necessary thing, but you view it as a necessary evil, right? As one preacher explained, without grumbling means without secretly wishing we didn't have to. Hospitality is not just a motion we go through. It is an expression of who we are in the church and what we think of one another. Scripture knows nothing of a Christian who closes himself or herself off to the fellowship of the saints. True Christian love produces a spirit of hospitality so that we enter into the lives of others and welcome them into our lives for the purpose of encouraging one another and caring for one another and fellowshipping with one another and discipling one another. Not grudgingly, like Ananias and Sapphira did and were punished for in Acts chapter 5, but joyfully from the heart, from a heart of genuine love for God, and for God's people, and for the ministry of the word that he's called us to. Christian, how are you practicing joyful hospitality within your local church? And that brings us to our final key word. Think, pray, love, share, and now finally serve. Serve. Those who live in the light of Christ's imminent return think soberly, pray dependently, love earnestly, share generously, and now serve faithfully. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Notice that he didn't say if anyone has received a gift. He says as each. If you are a Christian, you have been given a gift from God that is meant to be used within the assembly of the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. Every single one of you. And if you're not seeking to find out what that is and to serve as the Lord has enabled you, I assure you, this church is suffering for it. Every Christian has received a specific gift meant for service, for the building up of the, of the saints and the carrying out of the Great Commission. And he outlines two categories of gifts here. We, we can't go into too much detail for sake of time, but he outlines those who speak and those who serve. The gifts are different. There, there, there's any number of possibilities, just like there's any number of people involved. Some will speak. Some will have gifts that 
they'll, they'll be teachers, they'll be the leaders among the people, or they'll just have opportunities to speak an encouraging word to somebody else within the congregation. Whatever it is, it ought to be done according to the word of God, the oracles of God. I'm not here just to shoot the breeze with you. I'm here to, to, to encourage you with the word of God. And those who serve aren't serving to build up their own empire or to become territorial. They're not serving for the purpose of making themselves look good. They're doing it by the strength that God supplies for his glory alone. Christian, how are you involved in your local church, this local church? How are you serving for the building up of and the advancement of the ministry that God has called you to? I want you to consider one other verse. It's not on the screen, so you'll need to turn to it. Hebrews chapter 10. I want us to consider something that is very important that doesn't seem to be respected very well in today's age. We've seen the phrase, one another. We've seen the context of serving within the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 24 Go back to verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That's what Peter's talking about. Without wavering. That's the steadfast part. That's what Peter's talking about. For he who promised is faithful. That's the Christ that Peter's pointing us to. On the basis of that, verse 24. And let us consider how to take our gifts and our stuff and live for our own enjoyment. Because that's how a lot of people do it today, isn't it? Let's keep our thoughts to ourselves. Let's not stir the pot by confronting sin. No. Let us consider how to stir up. If the word is provoke. To take a stick and start poking for this end. To stir up one another to love and good works. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Beloved, you don't have time to live your life unto yourself. You don't have time to accumulate the world's stuff. You don't have time to fill your schedule and your calendar with stuff that doesn't help the body of Christ. You don't have time to sleep in Sunday mornings. You don't have time to put your Bible on a shelf and never look at it. You don't have time for this body of believers not to be involved in your life. You don't have time. There are many things that this world has to offer that we are allowed to enjoy, but not at the expense of this. You see the day drawing near, don't you? Look at the world we live in. I mean, good grief, if the first century Christians thought it was the end times, how much more is it now? And you really want the Lord to come back and find you engaged in something empty, worthless? And you really want your local church that is striving with all of its might for the sake of the gospel in your community to continue struggling without your help? You want the Lord to find you that way? There is work to be done, beloved. There is an eternity coming, and there is a Christ who is coming with vengeance on those who are lost. We've seen the urgent reality that the end of all things is near. The Lord's return is at hand. We have seen the critical call, the call for Christians to think, pray, love, share, and serve biblically. Now as we come to the end of verse 11, Peter gives a glimpse of the joyful glory that results from this spiritual focus. This passage is not just meant to be a club to beat lazy Christians over the head with. This is meant to be a cool drink of water for Christians who are parched and thirsty and ready to grow. Look at the end of verse 11. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the ultimate aim. This is the ultimate purpose of all creation and the life of every one of us. It is the glory of God. And that that idea behind the word glory is praise and worship. It is highest esteem and honor. And when you look at how God has created us and what he has called us to, it is the Christian's greatest joy to live for the highest glory of God above. If you are wasting your life away on something else, you are missing out. And this is where John Piper's famous statement knocks it out of the park that we are not just created. It is not just our chief end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is God's glory that we enjoy forever. We glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. That is the purpose. A passage like this is not meant to pull us out of what is truly joyful and and get us into this, this situation of slavery where we just have to trudge along as Christians seeking the glory of God and loving one another. No, for a Christian who sees reality, who knows God, who is living for his return, this is our greatest delight. I don't want to be anywhere else on a Sunday morning than here with you. And I don't want a closer group of people to me and my family than you. And I want more than anything that when you look at me, you see the character of God on display. And I want that character to be my highest joy, and I want it to be yours. And Peter is explaining to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how we can pursue that. Christians, if this is not us, we're missing out. We've been lulled to sleep. We've been deceived. And we're in for a rude awakening. In Revelation chapter 4, we see this glorious picture of a worship service. When all is said and done, this song, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But that praise song does not have to wait until the final day. That can be the song of our lives right here and right now, for we are told that in everything Christ is to be preeminent. That's in this world. And furthermore, Christ calls his people to put the glory of God on display right here and right now. He says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. That is your delight in the Lord and your gospel testimony and your life that is devoted and and pursuing its highest joy in him so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're already in 1 Peter. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter reinforces that call when he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him that you may proclaim not just him, but his excellencies. The one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then down in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's coming soon. May his return be the source of your joy in your eager anticipation, and not a day of dread. The end of all things is at hand. Our Lord Jesus Christ can return at any moment. Therefore, it is time to wake up. It is time to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It is time to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. You see that? To to, to pull us out of that fog, distracted lifestyle and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. This day of the Lord will come like a thief. But as we consider these things, what sort of people ought we to be? Peter says, in lives of holiness and godliness. Let's pray.